0: series through the book of Ecclesiastes, a series that um, I'm enjoying a book that I have talked through before but a book that I've never preached through uh, before and we're going to be in uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 6 verse 10 this morning we're going to go all the way through chapter 7 verse 14. Ecclesiastes 6:10 through 7:14. Whatever has come to be <clears throat> has already been named and it is known what man is and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he the more words the more vanity and what is the advantage to man for who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life which he passes like a shadow for who can tell man what will be after him under the sun a good name is better than precious ointment in the day of death than the day of birth It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will take it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools, for as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity." Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money... And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God, who can make straight what he has made crooked. In the day of prosperity be joyful, and in the day of adversity consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Lord, this uh, section of Scripture is filled with such great wisdom. We pray as we dig into it that you would give us understanding. Uh, We do love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. In life, that there are things that seem to be unnecessary. And as I begin to think about a good illustration of that, being from South Georgia, the first thing that popped in my mind that I think is certainly unnecessary is naps. Amen? I can't, after working in the yard yesterday, I cannot find a good reason to have naps. And never forget that one of the ten plagues that God put on Egypt to break the back of that nation was a plague of naps. Amen? That's enough to tell you how awful gnats are. Well, adversity in your life is is like gnats. You might wonder why in the world it exists. We're convinced that our life would be better if certain things didn't happen to us. Now, now, nevertheless, adversity is here, and adversity is going to be here for even the Christian until we meet the Lord. And if you look closely, you'll see that Solomon takes us back to the birth of adversity into this world back in chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. Now, I want to point out a few things there by way of introduction before we get into the meat of what we're going to be preaching about there. In chapter 6, verses 10 through 12, you'll notice that the word man is used four times. Man in Hebrew is Adam. Adam. And you know who that is. Adam was the first man. And there are several references to the Adam in the Garden of Eden in verses 10 through 12 of chapter 6. For instance, there's the naming of everything. Whatever has come to be has already been named. The writer's mind goes back to, well, who named all this? Well, it was Adam. And then there's the recognition that God is stronger than man and that man should not dispute with God. We remember Adam and Eve found this out very quickly. They, they dispute with God and they discovered that God was stronger than them. And then there's the reference to the foolishness of seeking what is good through our own wisdom. He says there, for who knows what is good for man? We remember that Adam and Eve decided that God didn't know what was good for man. They knew what was good for themselves. And as well, there's a reference to the ignorance of man. For who can tell what will be after him under the sun? Adam and Eve had no clue of the future they were building, not only for themselves, but the entire human race that because of them, sin would enter the world and the world would be completely different. They had no idea of the future. So I think what the writer Solomon is doing here is in in verses 10 through 12 of chapter 6, he's making a reference to the beginning of creation, to to Adam and Eve there. And the idea here is, is that Adam and Eve sinned and when they sinned, adversity came into the world. The Lord told him, he said, because of your disobedience, you're going to die. And that very day, Adam and Eve started dying. And the world began dying. Adversity was born and it affected everyone on the earth and it still affects everyone on the earth until this very day. Everyone will face adversity. Learning to face it in in the correct way is what's important. So in our text today, what we're going to see is three lessons on facing adversity. Three lessons on facing adversity. The first one is an interesting, what I want you to see here. If you're going to face adversity, the first thing you have to do in your life is acknowledge the reality of death. Acknowledge the reality of death. We see that in chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. And in verses 1 and 2, we see that the sorrow of death can lead to salvation. Solomon says it's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. In other words, it's better to go to a funeral than it is to go to a party. Sometimes I joke and I say, you know what? I would rather do, as a pastor, I would rather do a funeral than a wedding because all of my funerals have stuck. Amen? A lot of my weddings have not stuck there. Marriage isn't taken seriously anymore. And because marriage isn't taken that seriously anymore, weddings aren't either. And that's why oftentimes at weddings you'll see people getting drunk, you'll see people doing ungodly things, dressing in ungodly ways, dancing in inappropriate ways, filling their bellies filled full of alcohol. But for the most part, funerals are still pretty serious. And I want to tell you this morning that you ought to go to funerals. Because funerals are a reminder of where we're all headed. Every single one of us, everybody in this room, you'll have your own one day, your own funeral. Solomon says, this is the end of all mankind, and the living should take it to heart. He says, you ought to go to a funeral, and you ought to think about one of these days, you're going to be at that box in the front of the church, or you're going to be in that urn. And by the way, this is why the gospel should be preached at funerals. Humanity needs to be reminded that death isn't the end, that all of us are going to die and stand before God. And the sooner we accept the fact that we're going to die, the sooner we're going to prepare for it. Now, if I were to ask you this question, if you prepared for your funeral, you might say, oh, sure, I prepared for my funeral. I paid. I picked me out a plot. I already got me a casket. I've already got me an outfit I'm going to be buried in. I've already got me a preacher. Unless this one makes me mad, then I'll get me another one, but that's okay. I think that's the only thing anybody has written with a pencil, amen, on their funeral plans. And there's nothing wrong with preparing in that way. But but when it comes to your funeral, you should be preparing your soul. That's the most important thing to be prepared for. Solomon says a good name is better than precious ointment. He's talking about, you know, character there. There are some people in this world who smell good, but they're bad, man. They're bad. And all the perfume in this world won't make us smell good to God if we're not washed in the blood of the Lamb. Now, if you're saved, if you're saved, the day of your death will be better than the day of your birth. Now, you probably don't remember the day you were born. But listen, on the day you were born, you left a dark place. On the day you were born, you left a constricted place. On the day you were born, you left a lonely place. And it was a good day. All of a sudden, you were loved, you were pampered, you were blessed. And listen to me, Christian, on the day you die, on the day you die, you're going to leave a dark place, you're going to leave a constricted place, you're going to leave a lonely place because this whole world is dark, this whole world is constricting, and this whole world can be lonely. And it's going to be even better because you're going to enter heaven, you're not entering this world, you're going to enter a world where there is no adversity, where there is no curse, And so this morning, have you acknowledged that you're going to die? And has the sorrow of your death led you to seek Christ? Because that's the first step in dealing with adversity. Get the worst part of adversity out of the way. The worst part of adversity is dying. If you can get the worst part of adversity out of the way, then you can begin to deal with the rest of it. Prepare your soul for your own funeral not only can the sorrow of death lead to salvation, but the sorrow of death, verse 3, can lead to sanctification. Solomon says, by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. Now how does that work? The the face is sad and and the heart is glad. How can sorrow be better than laughter? What I think what Solomon means is the times of sorrow, especially things like funerals, they remind us of what's important in life. I'm telling you, you go to a funeral of somebody you love, and the rest of that day, you're thinking about what matters in life. You're not thinking about football teams. You're not thinking about stuff that, that has nothing to do with what you're going through. You're thinking about, man, these are things that matters. Oh, I mean, our faith is, is what we think about. I think, you know, when a person you love who was a Christian dies, you know what you do then? You thank God for your faith. When a person you love who is a Christian dies, your faith is the only thing you have to stand on at that point. That's why at every single funeral, we ought to say these words, Thank God for Jesus. Why? Because of Jesus we can see this person again. God will also take you through adversity to to not just remind you of these things, but to renew your faith. God has used tragic events in the lives of people who have strayed, To bring these people back to himself and to deepen their walk with God. One of the most needed things for you and I to grow in our faith as a Christian is humility. And nothing humbles us like adversity. Amen? When adversity comes and we realize things are out of our control, we get humbled. And when we get humbled, it's then and there that often God has our attention. And so it's not only just salvation that that, that can be brought by sorrow, but it's sanctification as well. And then I want you to see in verses 4 through 6 that the sorrow of death reminds us of the foolishness of sin. Solomon says the heart of the wise person is in the house of the morning. The house of the morning uh, symbolizes this place of sober reflection. You're thinking about what matters in life. But he says the heart of the fool is in the house of of mirth. A uh, mirth symbolizes excess. It symbolizes worldly pleasure. Foolish people live their life like life is one big party. And Solomon says all their laughter is like briars being burned beneath a pot in verse 6. We say, what in the world does that mean? When those briars are burning underneath that pot, they're popping. You ever heard of them pop, 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 pop. But guess what happens? Eventually... The poppin' stops. And when the poppin' stops, here's what you know. The briars have been burned up. And everything is quiet. And God has a way of just snapping His fingers. And all the laughter of the fool will stop. And they will have to make some sober reflection. You know, I've mentioned I've never tried to say that I was this great godly person growing up. I was a rebel against God. And I can remember on several occasions being at a big house party where things were way, up, way out of control. And nobody at that house party cared about the noise. Nobody at that house party cared about the neighbors. Everybody was laughing. Everybody was having a good time. And then, all of a sudden, the door flew open and here came the police. And as soon as they came in, the music was shut down, the laughter stopped, the dancing stopped, and here we went off to jail. And I want to tell you something, you can live your life like it's one big party. With no regard for God, with no regard for life, with no regard for self, with no regard for your neighbor. But one day, God is going to kick down the door. One day, God is going to shut the music off. One day, God is going to carry you away. Now look at verse 5. That's why he says it's better to hear the rebuke of the wise than the song of fools. There's a lot of people that would rather hear a song than a sermon. No one wants to be rebuked. But Solomon says it's better to listen to what the wise are saying than to join in with what the fools are doing. It's better to listen to what the wise are saying than to join in with what the fools are doing. So when we acknowledge early on that we're going to die and that, and that we are expected to give our lives to Christ and live by a certain standard, if we can go ahead and get that out of the way, adversity is going to be a completely different thing we deal with. We're going to deal with it in a completely different way. So the first thing you need to do is recognize that you live in a sinful, fallen world that is ultimately going to result in your death. And then you'll stand before God. That's the first thing to do. The second thing we see here, the second lesson, is is be patient. We see that in verses 7 through 10. Now, impatience can cause us to justify sin. We see that in verses 7 and 8. Verses 7 and 8 describe a politician whose impatience has led him to take a bribe to accomplish some political task that he wants to accomplish. Instead of being patient and waiting on God, they wanted to see immediate results, so they sacrificed their character to get those results. Now, the politician in verse 7 had good intentions. He said, you know, we just have to compromise to get what we want. He saw oppression and and he wanted to do something about it, but he was impatient and the situation drove him mad. And he used a sinful means to, to accomplish his goal. And I know that's how life is. You can just go crazy because of adversity. Your mind can go in 500 different directions. You don't know what to do. But I want you to listen to me now, folks. I don't care what situation you're in. God is never going to lead you to do something sinful. God is never going to lead you to do something sin- sinful to accomplish His will. you got to be patient. You've you got to trust God. You know, maybe you're trying to get money to pay a bill and-, and you can't think of any way to do it and you're tempted now to get that money in some ungodly way. Don't do it. Be patient. Maybe you're trying to keep a relationship and you think the only way I can keep a relationship with this person is if I do certain things that are wrong. Don't do it. Don't do it. Maybe you're trying to get a promotion at work and in order to get a promotion at work, you have to sacrifice your own ethics. You have to sacrifice your own morals to get that promotion. Don't do it, friend. Whatever adversity might come your way, sinful choices is never a way to deal with adversity. Be patient. Do the right thing. Don't be like Sarah who got so impatient that she told her own husband to go have a sexual relationship with a woman that he wasn't married to at all. Remember that? And it was trouble, trouble, trouble after that. If you get in a hurry, you may justify sin and you might cause more problems for yourself than you had beforehand. Impatience can cause you to justify sin when you're in the midst of adversity. Uh, secondly, verse 9, impatience can transform you into an, 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 can transform us into angry people. Look what he says in verse 9. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools impatience and anger go hand in hand. Isn't that true? You ever seen an impatient, happy person? Doesn't happen, does it? It's just two sides of the same coin. Impatience and and, and anger. Now when adversity comes, what do we want to do? We, We just want to leave it. We want it out of our way and when it doesn't get out of our way oftentimes it leads to anger. It's very natural now to want adversity to leave quickly. But here's the thing, church. We don't get the control when it does. And we've been pretty spoiled. You know, we live in America. We're we're blessed. Uh, When we don't have our internet fixed immediately, we get upset with our provider. When we don't get our drink filled up immediately at the restaurant, we get upset with our waitress. When we don't get our car fixed immediately, we get upset with the mechanic. When God doesn't remove adversity from our life immediately, we get upset with Him. We say, God, you can do this. God, you have all the power to remove this situation from me, to change everything. But listen to me, angry attitudes and thoughts should pass through your mind and heart. He says here they lodge there with the impatient person. They shouldn't lodge there because when anger lodges in your heart, you're going to naturally have angry thoughts. You're going to naturally have temptation to just be upset. That's part of being a fallen human being. But it's when you get impatient when it lodges in your heart and you become bitter and you become hateful. You know, a lot of us try to act like we're the perfect parents. There's no perfect parents. Not even Mary and Joseph were. And I've had stuff like this happen with my kids. You know, I tell them to clean their room or something like that. And I come back a little bit later and nothing is done. And I lose my patience and I get upset with them. All of us parents have done something like that. And sometimes we do the same thing with God. We say, God, I want you to clean up this mess now. And we explain to the Lord, Lord, I need this mess cleaned up right now. And a little time passes and there the mess is. It's still there. And we lose it. And we become angry. And we say and, and do things that we may even be ashamed of. You've got to be careful, man. Impatience can cause us to give up on the future. Look at verse 10. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. You know, the, the fellow in verse 10, he's giving up on the future. Lord, I don't guess you're going to do anything good anymore. I guess it's all just bad now. Lord, things were a lot better when... You know, when we're impatient, we believe God has quit working. We believe that every good thing He was going to do, He's already done. And we give up on the future. Listen to me, Christian. As a Christian, you need to remember that your best days are always ahead of you. Always. You hear me? As a Christian, your best days are always ahead of you. Your life is going to be better than it is right now. In fact, your life is going to be far better. Paul said to be with Christ is far better than to be on earth in Philippians 1.23. If you're a Christian, listen to me, you are headed to heaven. Whatever adversity it is that you're going through, I'm telling you, it's going to pass. But if you allow impatience to invade your life, you'll not be able to enjoy the life that God has given you. Whatever God is doing in your life, I don't care what it is, Christian, whatever God is doing for your, in your life right now is for your future. Paul said it this way in, in um, 2 Corinthians four seventeen: For this light momentary affliction, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You ever think about that? You ever feel like how foolish we'll feel one day when we realize that everything we complained about on this earth was for our own good? When you and I walk in those gates, when we see all the Lord has prepared for us, when we see all the goodness and all the glory that God has for us, you ever think about that, that perhaps you'll say, my goodness, why did I ever complain about any affliction in my life? It was all leading to this place. It was all taking me right here. And the third thing I want you to see here is to seek God's wisdom in prosperity and adversity. We see that in verses 11 through 14. 14. No, we need God's wisdom when life is great. You see it there in, in, in uh, uh, verses 10 through 12. Say not, uh, I'm sorry, um, 11 and 12. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage for those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. See, God here, He's for everyday life. Solomon says we need the wisdom of God if we have an inheritance. He says having wisdom is like having money. I mean, it helps to have money because money enables you to obtain things you need to make life easier. Wisdom does the same thing, but it does it in a greater way. And by the way, if you get an inheritance and don't have wisdom, you won't have an inheritance long. Right? It'll be gone real quick. You know, there are people who think they don't need God unless they're broke. They don't need God unless they're sick. They don't need God unless they're in jail. But I want to tell you something, friend. We all need the Lord. And it's the Lord's wisdom that protects us from the evil in this world every single day. And the truth is this. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have anything. A rich man without Jesus is poor. A healthy man without Jesus is sick. A free man without Jesus is imprisoned. Some seem to think this way about the Lord. God, if you'll get me out of this hole I'm in right now, I believe I can make it. If you can just give me a little boost, Lord, you can just get me out of this hole, I'll make it. But that's not it, church. You don't just need God when things are bad. And if your relationship with God is like with God is like that, when things get bad, you run to the Lord. You don't understand what a relationship with the Lord is like. We need the Lord every day. When life is great, don't stray. When life is great, don't stray. In the same way that that you, 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 you need to spend money every day to keep yourself comfortable in life every single day, you have to spend the wisdom of God to enjoy the benefits that God has for you in this world. The old hymn writer said, I need thee every hour, didn't he? He said, I need thee every hour in joy or pain. Come quickly and abide or life is vain. Folks, we need the Lord in times of prosperity. If you're not going through anything right now, I hope that you're clinging to Him just as closely as you would be if you were going through terrible, terrible times right now. This is the wisdom of God. Not to wait till adversity to seek Him. And the second thing I want you to see in, in verse 13 and under this point is that We need to accept that there are things we cannot change. He says, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? God makes something crooked. You can't make it straight. That's all there is to it. One of the wisest things you and I could ever do in our life is stop worrying about stuff we can't change. Amen? If you can't change it, don't worry about it. You want to hear some great theology? I'm about to give you some great theology. It is what it is. Amen? That's great theology. It is what it is. And when you and I accept that, we, we can move on. But if we begin to give God ultimatums, if we say, all right now, God, you got to change this, then we're in trouble. If you say, God, I'm not going to move a muscle until you do this. My friend, you have messed up. I will promise you this. God is more committed to His will than you are to yours. Hear me? He's going to get it done. He's going to get it done. He's going to get it done, y'all. God is more committed to his will than you are to yours. And we could even, uh, I promise you that, that, that if you think that if you just keep being stubborn enough, then God will change his mind. It's not going to happen. You can be stubborn. You can pitch a fit. You can resist. But God is going to have his way. That's all there is to it. And if his way involves some adversity that you and I have to go through, that's it, church. That's it. You know, sometimes I'll be going through the creek and my trolling motor will hang up on a tree. And when it does that, as long as it's attached well, when it does that, um, you'll get stuck. You're just sitting there. There's nothing you can do because your motor is stuck on the tree. You can't go anywhere. But even though I'm a logical person and I understand that my motor is hung on a tree and I can't go anywhere, for some reason I'll still try to. I can promise you it doesn't work. Never does. But for some odd reason, I always try. And there are places I can't get to in the creek until what happens? Until the water rises. Now, I'm a halfway decent fisherman, but there's something I can't do, y'all. I can't make the water rise. I can't make the water rise. When the water rises, guess what? I can float right over that tree. But the rising of the water is not in my hands. It's in God's hands. And sometimes, church, you just hate... You, sometimes, church, you have to wait for the water to rise. You've you got to be patient. You can't just try to plow through and get your own way. It might jerk your motor off the back of the boat if you're not careful. And it's sad that it takes the wisdom of God for us to get that, but but It does. We can't just try to plow our way through this earth. When adversity comes, we have to be patient and say, Okay, Lord, here I am. Here I am. My last point is that adversity should cause us to consider the greatness of God. Look at verse 14. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. So he's saying the time of adversity is a time of of thought. It's a time of deep, of depth. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. He says, in the day of prosperity, be joyful, but in the day of adversity, consider that God made it too. And here he says, God's ways are above our ways. He says, man doesn't have a clue what's going on, but God does. Some of y'all got the weather app. Some of you watch TV at 6 o'clock and in the mornings too. But I got news for you. It might rain tomorrow or it might not. Amen. You don't even have to watch the weather. I'm just going to tell you that. It might rain tomorrow and it might not. I might be healthy tomorrow or I might not. I might not. The stock market might rise tomorrow. Or it might fall tomorrow. And nobody in this room knows the answers to any of those que- any of those statements that I just put forth. Not a single person in this room can answer definitively to any of those things that I just said. Think about that for a moment. As much as we know, you don't know if it's going to rain tomorrow or not. You don't know if you'll be healthy tomorrow or not. And you don't know what the stock market will do tomorrow. You don't know. You can guess, but you don't know. That's humbling, isn't it? That's humbling to know, hey, these are just basic things in life, and I don't know these things. But God knows. And that's why we're forced to trust in Him. There's a whole lot of days when I don't know what God's doing in my life. And most of those days, I'd do things quite differently, if it were up to me, amen? But I'm not in control. God's in control. We have an old cat... I guess it's about 11 years old, something like that. We have an old cat that doesn't have any sense. Now, I'm not convinced that any cats have sense, but this cat certainly doesn't have any sense. And in the past, it's gotten so sick. Um, oh, by the way, sometimes Jennifer will get in there and she'll, she'll pick a tick off that. That is the non tickingest cat you've ever seen in this world. Because Jennifer's going to make sure a cat's not on there more than three or four minutes. I mean, a tick's not on there at least three or four minutes. She'll pick them things off. Drives me crazy to watch her i got to take care of it. This is my baby. One time the cat got so sick, I had to feed a Pedialyte through a syringe. Because I don't take animals to the bed. I don't get mad at me. I don't have that kind of money. But I had to hold that rascal down and it doesn't like me a bit. And I was the only one who had the strength to hold it down. I had to feed it pediolot through a syringe. And it resisted and it resisted and it resisted. It didn't like it at all. That cat was experiencing what it thought was adversity in its life. But the truth is, someone smarter than it and someone more powerful than it was doing something for it that would ultimately benefit it. The cat just didn't have the capacity to understand that. Listen to me, church. God is far greater than us. And sometimes He may have us in a headlock. And sometimes He may be doing stuff to us that just seem to hurt. Sometimes He puts us in situations that are comfortable. Sometimes we don't understand how in the world this is going to benefit us at all. It's like gnats. But we need to remember that God is far stronger than us. And God is far wiser than us. And God loves us more than we love ourselves. And when God is doing something in your life that you don't understand, instead of getting angry at Him, stand in awe of Him. Say, Lord, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but I'm just trusting in You. Trust that whatever's happening in your life is going to bless you in the end. And by the way, we should know that because we know the story of Christ. The Christ who went to weddings, and when He went to weddings, He trusted the Father there. But the Christ who went to funerals, and when He went to funerals, He trusted the Father there. And when He went to the cross, He trusted the Father there. In the day of prosperity, and in the day of adversity, we see our Christ continuing to trust in the Father. And that is our example, church. Christ So in adversity, we simply need to acknowledge the reality of death. We live in a fallen world filled with suffering that will ultimately result in our death. In adversity, we need to be patient. We don't need to just try to plow through the situation. We need to say, God, you have me here, and during this time, I will learn what you want me to learn. And in times of adversity, we need to seek the wisdom of God and say, Oh God, not my will, but your will. Teach me how to act in this situation. Now listen to me church, you cannot rightly face adversity if you do not have Jesus Christ. You cannot do it in your own power. You need to turn from your sins and believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died and rose again for you. And you need to turn with all of your heart to Him and call on His name and say, Christ save them. When you do that, you're able to face adversity. Perhaps this morning you've done that, but, 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 but some trials have just clouded your vision and, and you've gotten far from God because you're so upset with you. Maybe you need to say, oh God, I'm sorry. Let me just admit, I don't know what you know. Maybe someone in your family is going through something so horrible and you need to pray that God would open their eyes and show them the wisdom they need. Whatever it is God may be speaking to you about, I hope, pray and hope that you'll hear His voice. Father in heaven, we love you.